0: All right, we're going to dig right in tonight, and so if you brought a Bible, or if you want to use one of the Bibles sitting in front of you in the back of a pew, you can just open it up to the first few pages to the book of Genesis. Um, Before we get started proper, though, I did want to say a few things up front. Uh, Communication is hard. And so I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I constantly find I want to give introductions to the introductions to my introductions. It's just the nature of trying to set the stage before you get started. If there's any night, though, where that's appropriate, it's tonight. Uh, because what we 're looking at is not merely the first book of the Bible, which is which name literally means beginning, um, but we 're looking at the beginning of the beginning of the book and um, and it 's also our beginning of this through the Bible thing and so let me lay a little bit of groundwork before we even look at the book of Genesis and just explain um, what exactly it is that we are doing and why okay. Um, For many of us who are Christians, and even if you're not a Christian, if you've ever encountered the Bible, uh, there's a couple of realities that come into that for most people. Um, One is there's probably large portions of the scriptures you haven't encountered at all. Uh, And so there may be things that you're familiar with, maybe you've read through, maybe you've spent much time in, and then there's other parts that are just a lot more foreign to you. Uh, Another reality is that for most of us who attend church and listen to preaching, um, the way that we approach the scriptures is relatively slow. The pace is relatively slow. And so you may come from a background of church where your encounter with the scriptures is primarily thematic. And so if I can use the metaphor of a forest, um, you know how to spot a sycamore tree. You've heard sermons on the concept that God is love or, or eternal judgment or topically and it's addressed. And you've seen examples of that in Scripture, but the sermon has been on the concepts of the Bible. Um, or maybe you come from a church that teaches directly through the Bible and still, using our forest metaphor, what you're used to is looking at a single tree at a time. And so you've taken a close inspection at a couple of verses or an entire chapter. Uh, And both of those, by the way, are relatively valuable ways to view the scripture, things that I do in my own teaching of the Bible in other settings. Um, But there is, of course, also a value of getting a broader, bigger picture. There's one thing to be able to spot a sycamore tree, there's another to have the map laid out in front of you and see where the sycamore forest begins and where the fir forest ends, to see the wide contours and the layout of the forest, if you will. Another thing that's worth keeping in mind is that these books are books, and so although to understand them well because of a large distance of time and culture and all of these things, we do need to go slow, we do need to be thorough, they were written to be read generally in a single sitting. Um, the letters in the New Testament are a great example, the epistles uh, were written from an author to a church or sometimes an individual. And just like if you received a letter in the mail, it would be generally read in a single sitting. Um, We know from early church history because there were lots of letters post the New Testament written from church to church that they would have been read publicly to the congregation as it was gathered. So instead of gathering and hearing a sermon, they heard one of the Apostle Paul's letters, for example, read in its entirety. Okay. And so um, in the same way, In the same way, another way that this is valuable is summed up in the word context. Okay, context is where we get meaning. It's not just the space where meaning happens, like the box that we put our ideas in. Most of the time it actually conveys those ideas. And so letters mean something, but you put those letters in context of other letters and you have a word. You put those words in the context of other words and you have a sentence and so on and so forth. Even the spaces that we put between words is part of the context, right? It makes the difference uh, between one combination of letters and another. Um, And so, one of the values of going through the Bible relatively quickly is understanding the fact that the Bible is a library, yes, of many books by many authors at many times, but it also is best understood as a single book, as a single work. And the best way to understand, for example, the book of Ruth is to see it in its context of the story of Scripture. And that's an idea, by the way, that we don't get just guessing on how to read the Bible, it's a biblical idea. The book of Ruth, by the way, begins with in the days of the judges. And so the context for the story of Ruth is rooted in the book of Judges, which comes right before it, okay? That helps us to understand the why behind the book of Ruth, okay? Now, even tonight, we'll touch on that a little bit. We'll see that the themes and the beginnings, if you will, of Genesis lead on to the middle, of the Bible, as well as the end of Revelation, that there's a continuity here. And so taking this faster pace is a good way to see the big picture, to give scripture a wide-angle lens. Um, Another reason why we're doing this is a personal reason. Um, I have experienced the benefits firsthand of a through-the-Bible study, and it wasn't by choice. It was part of my education. I attended a small Bible college, um, and one of my classes was literally listening to recordings of a pastor doing this exact thing over the course of two years from Genesis to Revelation. Um, And though I didn't always pay attention And I didn't always agree with that, Pastor. The benefit of having a general feel for the whole Bible has constantly been rewarding and helpful in my life, okay? One last piece. Paul, speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts, a church that he's planted, elders that he's appointed and passed on the church into their care, he speaks of his time among them and says, I did not neglect to declare to all of you the entirety of the counsel of God. And so he saw his responsibility as a leader, as a pastor, as a teacher to declare the whole counsel of God. And I don't think teaching from Genesis to Revelation is the only way to do that, or we'd have to say that Paul didn't do that, because as he said those words, as if he could check the box and say it's already done, some of the books we call the New Testament weren't even written yet. But one of the greatest ways to get an understanding for the whole counsel of God is to read the whole Bible. The implication behind that, the foundation for that is God has chosen to reveal himself in the entirety of Scripture. Scripture. So the entirety of it has value for us in understanding who God is, okay? Now, for the book of Genesis, I don't want to spend all of tonight just introducing the book of Genesis, but it is helpful to get a feel for the whole book before we look in. Um, The word Genesis, the title is just taken from the very first word in the Hebrew manuscript of the book of Genesis, which is simply just the word beginning, And so Genesis, just like you think of the creation of life to generate, right? it's that type of word, beginning. Um, And it truly is appropriately called a beginning because we find in it the beginning of everything that matters biblically. And so it starts in verse 1 with, in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the universe as we know it begins in Genesis. Uh, Life as well as human life begins in Genesis. The great problem, the answer the Bible gives to the question, what is wrong with this world, begins in Genesis. But not only that, God's plan to fix that problem, the whole entirety of the plan of salvation, the, uh, the story arc that culminates and climaxes in the Gospels with Jesus coming, begins in the book of Genesis. The calling and creation of a new nation in Israel. Israel begins in Genesis. All of the promises that make up the narrative of the rest of the Old Testament and find their fulfillment in the New Testament begin in the book of Genesis. And so it's aptly named the book of beginnings. Now in terms of how the book lays out, there's a couple of things that I'd like you to keep in mind to save for later, if you will, just to get a feel for the book. Um, First up, it's made up of 50 chapters, and those chapters were added in about the 1500s, okay? And so as we'll even see tonight, they're not always very good guides of where to stop and start. They were primarily provided by an editor, a guy named Stephanus, so that people could reference passages of scripture easily. It's helpful, isn't it, when somebody says, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we all turn to the same place. But in terms of dividing up the Bible and dividing up your understanding, it can be a little bit arbitrary. Uh, maybe the only thing that would be more arbitrary would be teaching by page number, okay? The primary unit of thought in the Bible is the same primary unit of thought in all literature, what we call the paragraph, okay? And so, um, nonetheless, the chapters are present. Genesis has 50 of them, and it splits pretty easily, evenly into two halves, Genesis 1 through 11 all deals with big things. In fact, it deals with universal things. It deals with things that we can all trace our lineage to, things that impact the entire world and we all share as our history. And so there's the creation of the world. Um, There's our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, There's the first civilizations. There's a worldwide flood. There's the origin of all languages and the Tower of Babel. All those things fit in the first 11 chapters, If you just take the timeline as it's stated in the book of Genesis in those first 11 chapters, you're talking about 2,000 years of history at least, okay, bare minimum. But then there's a massive shift in perspective and focus in the book of Genesis. And starting with chapter 12, it zooms in on a single man and his family. And so chapters 12 all the way through 50 focus on Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons that eventually make up the 12 tribes of Israel. The time period that's covered in those, uh, help me with the math, those 38 chapters is less than 200 years, less than 150 years, in fact, okay? And so we have 2,000 years covered relatively quickly, and then we have most of the book focusing in. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that for the author of the book of Genesis, the real material, what he really wants to talk about, comes in the second half, okay? But he needs the first half to set the stage. He needs the first half to present the problems before he gets into the specifics of the solutions, okay? Now, there's one other structural piece to Genesis that's helpful to note. There is a recurring phrase throughout the book of Genesis. It occurs 10 times, and most times it's translated of the book or the generations of, okay? And so we have the generations of Adam. We have the generations of Noah. We have the generations of Abraham. Ten times it's repeated. We'll hit the first one tonight, and that one, interestingly, is the generations of the heavens and the earth. But it's relatively clear that each of those functions as a section on its own, and there's ten of them. In fact, when you remember that Genesis was most likely compiled, um, tradition tells us that it was compiled by Moses along with the other four books that make up the Pentateuch which just means five books, uh, make up the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, were written in the days of Moses. Okay? And so Moses is looking back and telling a good deal of history that is inherently pre-Moses. Many scholars believe that what we find in these generations of these toldots are pre-existing documents, family records, if you will, Now, probably not your parents, but your parents' parents or maybe their parents' parents, if they had a Christian heritage at all, were probably recording in the front of their Bible's family history. These are like that. They're the telling of grandpa's story. And what we see is in the book of Genesis, these have been compiled and collectively edited to tell the whole story of what God is doing. And so we'll encounter those as we go along, but that's the big view of the book of Genesis. So now when we get to chapter one, chapter one functions very well as an introduction to chapters two through eleven, the rest of this big universal history. It functions very well as an introduction to chapters two through fifty, the entirety of Genesis. It functions very well as an introduction to the entirety of the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which just as an aside, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as well as Joshua, all begin with the word and. And. Okay, that's why we treat them like one book, because they just pick up the story where it was left off in the last book. Um, uh, and then it also functions as a really good introduction to the entirety of the Bible. And so if you turn to the last chapter of the Bible in the book of Revelation, you'll find continuity in imagery. We have a garden in chapter one of Genesis, we have a garden in the final chapter of Revelation. We have the tree of life in Genesis, we have a tree of life in Revelation. In fact, uh, the last two chapters of Revelation and the first two chapters of Genesis are the only place where we see everything as it should be. The sandwich between that is full of problems, it's full of death, it's full of difficulty, it's full of sin. In fact, if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, let me just um, preemptively pop a bubble, a misunderstanding. There's a tendency, if you're not familiar with scripture, to expect to find the Bible full of virtuous people, to see the Bible as effectively a collection of moralistic stories about people who did the right thing. Genesis spoils that relatively quickly. Um, listen to these words. So I have a book on my bookshelf by R. Crumb. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He had a comic for years and years called American Splendor. He's an illustrator. Um, and he's actually known for basically two things, for grotesque drawing style and, uh, and intense sexuality. That's what he's known for. And interestingly enough, he illustrated the book of Genesis. And the reason he was drawn to it is because it felt like his type of material. And in his introduction, he says some really interesting things. One thing he does is he criticizes all other illustrations he's seen of the book of Genesis, who he says consistently are done by people who see it as God's divine word as being inaccurate, as adding things to the story or changing things or concealing things that are clearly in the text. Uh, and he says that's ironic because they believe it's the word of God. I think it's the word of man, but I think I've been more faithful. And then he says this. He says, if my visual, literal interpretation of the book of Genesis offends or outrages some readers, which seems inevitable concerning that the text is revered by many people, all I can say in my defense is that I approach this as a straight illustration job with no intention to ridicule or make visual jokes. Madeline L'Engle, the author who wrote A Wrinkle in Time and tons of books over the course of her life, in her book, which is a reflection on the first few chapters of Genesis, says this. She says, in the book of Genesis is all the material for a flaming bestseller, sex, incest, virtue, violence, greed, conflict, lust, love, murder, it's all there. And we'll find this as we move through the book of Genesis that looking for a virtuous, upright standing citizen, looking for a moralistic example is is very difficult. And even the first verse tonight we'll look at gives us a reason why that is. Because effectively, the Bible is not a book about men. And it's not even a book recording the speculations of men about God or recording the encounters of men with God. As we'll see in the perspective of the very first one of the book of Genesis, this is ultimately, totally, and fully a book about God. God's self-revelation. Him telling his own story to show who he is and what he's doing. And so what we find in it primarily is both his words when he says, this is what I'm going to do, and his works, where he does what he said he was going to do. And so what we find then throughout the Old Testament and see repeated um, in the New Testament is a faithful God who doesn't allow the failures and rebellions of people to stand in the way of his ultimate plan of saving mankind. And so we'll see over and over again man's failures and God's faithfulness. Okay, With all that being laid out, let's go ahead and begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. Inevitably, inevitably, we will start slow and speed up, but let's just look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right here, I feel justified. I feel validated because this is an introduction to the introduction. Here, he just gives us a subject title. Uh, This is what you would see on the marquee outside of the performance, if you will. What follows is a descriptive telling of what we just read. But what does it say? Simply put, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that for all of the beginnings we find in Genesis, we don't find a beginning for God, right? Here, we don't find the origins of God, we don't even find an apologetic for the existence of God. God is just stated in verse 1 as a presupposition. He just is assumed. In the beginning, God. Okay, And that's important to realize, and there's a few things that we should keep in mind. Uh, first off, the ancient world, the world that this text was written in, there were no atheists. There were polytheists, and the Jews kind of stood alone as monotheists, believing in a single God, but a belief in the divine was basically universal. Okay? Any ancient civilization that dates back to the early annals of history, right on the cusp of prehistory, right on the cusp of before we started recording records or before we have records dating back to, almost every civilization assumes the reality of the divine. But think of all the things that you would like The Bible to be about, what things that you would like answers to that are not given here. And this is not going to stop here with the origin or the existence or the evidence or the proof of God. Uh, We'll see as we go on, uh, the author, Moses, is not going to spend time slowing down to address our modern concerns. Okay, like I said, he's going to roll through 2,000 years of surprisingly interesting history, things that we'd like to know a lot about, and he doesn't pull the e-brake and slow down until he gets to Abraham. Okay. The second thing I want you to notice about this verse is that uh, what we have here is a pre-existent God and then just a statement that he created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Now, most likely, when it says heavens and earth here, this is a merism. A merism is a literary feature that basically means it takes two things that are opposites and assumes you'll understand it means everything in between. And so, for example, when we say day and night, we usually mean the entire 24-hour cycle. And so when it says here that God created the heavens and the earth, it means that he created all that there is. Now, clearly, this verse stands directly against a modern, scientific, naturalist, philosophical viewpoint. I bring this up a lot, but the cosmos of Carl Sagan's origin, the documentary from the 1970s but that many of us saw in high school, begins very differently and yet strangely similar to this. Carl Sagan begins his documentary saying, the cosmos, all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. The implication of that idea is that the material world that we see in front of us, and as far as we could possibly explore it, is eternally existent, There's nothing outside of it, there's nothing transcending it, there's nothing more. It's a box, it's a closed box, and everything that is exists in the box. Now as modern as that view is, it's actually relatively similar to the belief of all of the Israelites' neighbors. The only difference is they put gods in the box. And so they say they saw gods as being things that just kind of sprung out of chaos, sprung out of the primordial soup, and existed in nature. Were subject to nature, interacted with nature, but uh, but weren't all powerful, weren't omnipotent. Uh, and so, actually, the modern naturalist viewpoint and the ancient polytheists have that in common: that they saw anything that exists in the universe. Inherently, as always existing as as part of it, um, at least in potential. Against that, though, Genesis 1 begins, once again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see here God as apart from all that is. We see everything we know, everything we experience, and it's worth pointing out that some have seen in this first verse the three elements that make up reality as we know it. We have in the beginning, and so time, Time is a created thing, according to the Bible. It's not an assumed context that God was working in. God wasn't wearing a Rolex before Genesis gets started, right? Um, And then when it says the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. And so we have the three things that make up the world as we understand it, space and matter as well as time, all being created, all originating here with a single, separate from that, Reality, labeled here as God. Now, it's worth noting that the word here for God is a relatively generic term for God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. And the reason I say it's relatively generic is sometimes it's used in the plural to refer to pagan gods collectively. The gods, lowercase g. Um, in fact, this word, uh, this word we find in other non-Hebrew languages referencing their own gods, now, that's going to change when we get to chapter two, but it starts here with just a generic reality, but as it talks about this generic reality, it basically dismantles all of um, the uh, Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Middle Eastern worldview. It's fascinating. I don't actually expect you to do this. Frankly, I haven't read anything that's not been put in front of me, but it's fascinating to read the mythology of the Babylonians or the Mesopotamians or those who were in this culture and both compare and contrast it with Genesis chapter 1 because there are some similarities. They explain the same things, the beginnings of the same things that we talked about. Um, There's even some order issues. In fact, there's an Arcadian document, if I remember right, that follows the same general flow of Genesis 1 through 11, creation, something going wrong, and a flood. Um, But... But it appears here that what the author is doing is actually combating those views because it uses the same language, but it says things that are completely outlandish, completely different in their view. And we'll see that as we go on. But notice here, it just says bluntly and clearly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, recognize, um, we'll come back to the issue of science and creation later, but right now I want you to recognize that if you can start there, then the rest of the Bible can easily follow. If there really is a creator outside of creation, if there really is a creator who's not tied to creation, if there really is a sovereign creator who made everything there is in creation, then the rest of the Bible, the miracles, uh, the fact that God has a plan and carries it out, the Bible's existence of a revelation of God, it all nestles into that relatively easily. Okay? Um, That doesn't mean that if you struggle with this verse, you can't explore Christianity or can't encounter directly the person of Jesus Christ and be transformed. This can be a secondary thing. I just want you to recognize that if this is real, if there really is a God who is outside of creation and made all that there is, then the leap to everything else the Bible proclaims is not that big. Now, let's continue on in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so it says in verse 1 descriptively that God created all there is, and now it goes back, as I told you, and tells the story. This is actually a really common way of Hebrew storytelling that we'll encounter often, where the summary version of the story is given, and then he winds back and, and walks us through the details of it. Um, but here we get the beginning, and what we find, it says, is that the earth was without form and void, okay? Now, those words, synonyms I find help, helpful are um, shapeless and empty, okay? It says that the place God started with was shapeless and empty, um, and the reason why it's helpful to have those synonyms is when we go through the six days of creation that follow, we'll find that the first three days are about shaping the universe and the next three days are about filling the universe. And so basically, God starts from scratch and builds out of that, okay? This is why Christians, and even the early Christian church fathers, spoke of creation out of nothing, Um, The Latin version is ex nihilo, to create out of nothing. And there's implications of that even in verse 1, right? God created the heavens and the earth. It's out of nothing becomes something. Um, In fact, some have pointed to the word for creation there and noticed that it's relatively unique. In verse 1, the word for create is bara. And even later in chapter 1 and then throughout the Bible, we'll encounter another Hebrew word for creation, which is asa. And some have said, well, bara means to create out of nothing. And so that's why we find it in verse 1 is ex nihilo is implied by this Hebrew word. If you look at the word as it's used throughout the Bible, that crumbles pretty quickly. You'll find all sorts of places where that word is used that don't seem to fit that understanding. For example, later in the Bible, God will say, I created you Israel. And he doesn't really mean there that just suddenly there was Israel. Uh, in the same way, David in Psalm 51 prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and he uses the same word, bara. However, when you do look at its usage, you discover two things that I think are very enlightening. The first is that this word is never used of a human being. Whatever bara means, it's something only God can do. Okay? And so you can make something, but you have to borrow what God created. But creation is something only God can do. And that's the reality behind Israel and the reality behind the heart that David is praying for. I'll prove that in just a second. But we have to look at the second part as well. This word bara also in its usage usage implies something new. Okay, And so every time it's used, it's not used of Mach 2 or Mach 3. It's not post-prototype. It's new. It's novel. And so in that sense, here's how it works in the other passages of Scripture. As I mentioned, it uses it, God uses it for the creation of Israel, and Israel was something only God can do because Abraham, where God begins, is old with a barren wife, and Abraham's son Isaac marries a barren wife, and even Jacob, who marries two women and has two concubines, like I said, it's kind of a mess in Genesis, um, his original chosen wife, barren, okay? And so the beginnings of the nation of Israel are miraculous, Not only that, but they're novel, they're new. Israel's not like other nations. It's created with a purpose in a different way, to be something different. The Israelites themselves, looking at what God has done in the book of Exodus, say, who has ever been a nation like this, with God so close, given God's laws? It's something new. When David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's recognizing first and foremost that his heart is the issue. Right? He's repenting of sin in that psalm, and he says the problem starts here. The problem is internal. It's not just an accident. It's not just my behavior. It's not just habit. It's, it's internal. And then when he prays that God would borrow, create in him a clean heart, he knows that he can't do it himself, that ultimately his sin struggle, if you will, he can't save himself. He can't fix himself. And so he asks God to do what only God can do. And then when he asks for a clean heart, he's asking for a new heart, okay? Not a heart just like his, not a second chance and he'll do better next time, but something new. He's alluding to, he's, he's implying something we see later in the prophets when they start to describe that that's exactly what God's plan is, that he's going to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, right? It's a completely new thing that God is going to do. Even in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah sees what he calls the new heavens and the new earth, he uses this word bara. And so when we get to the book of Revelation at the end and John sees the new heavens and the new earth, the idea there is of something that only God could do, finally solve the problem, and something completely new, a restored earth, a fixed earth, an earth without the problems that we currently experience. Okay, and so, but we see the same thing here in verse 2. That the earth was without form and void. That the slate was blank, blank here. And then it describes it in a third way. It says darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, And so all we get here is darkness and deep. All we get here is depths of water and darkness. That's where God begins. Now, generally, I'm not going to always address um, address other interpretations that I don't care for but it's worth mentioning here that some people to reconcile the bible with science have assumed there was a gap between verse one and verse two and so verse one isn't a description of the rest that follows but something God did and then verse two is some undetermined time later where God picks up the pieces of we know not what Oftentimes, they look at a verse in Isaiah where it says specifically, using this same Hebrew construction, tohu wa bohu, without form and void, that God didn't create the world to be without form and void. And they go, see, God's intention in creations, he creates to be filled, and what we find here is something preexistent to human life that went wrong, and God picks up the pieces and moves forward. And they find that a helpful way to put a good deal of time on the history of the universe. You know, it's a gap. Here's my primary problem with the gap theory, as it's known. Simply this. Moses doesn't speak in gaps. Nobody does, right? He's not trying to imply anything between the verses here. If he wanted to tell us there was a space of time, he would have said it. And so, so at the very least, we can say that Moses doesn't care for the gap theory. And I would encourage you, and this is a general reading practice, but it's good to imply to the Bible, to focus on what the Bible says and not what it doesn't say. It's just, just how we read. It's how we communicate. Um, but nonetheless here, it looks more likely that God starts with a blank slate, and then it says that despite the fact that there was darkness and deep without form and void, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters now, this is a hard one to chew on, and I, I don't mean in believability, I just mean in understandability. What, what exactly does this mean when it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters? The first thing you have to understand here is the word for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, and it's translated three primary ways throughout the Old Testament. One is as spirit, and so later in the book of Genesis, it will refer to the spirit of man. Right, This unseen part of us that makes up really who we are, but isn't physical like our body. Another way that it's translated is as wind. Okay? And so, uh, like the spirit inside us, the wind is unseen. Okay? And then the final way that it's translated is as breath. And so you can see the relationship between wind and breath and spirit. It, what's really interesting is when you get to the New Testament and we change the Greek language... The Greek word pneuma, which is, trans, uh, uh, which is translated spirit in our Bibles, also carries all three of those concepts, wind, breath, and spirit. That's why pneumatic, right, means something that's powered by air, by pressure, um, And so, here the question is, so is this the wind of God, or the breath of God, or is it the spirit of God? And if it's the spirit of God, what exactly does that mean? Now, if you're using the Bible from the pew, or an ESV like I am, um, then you probably see the word spirit there, and it's probably capitalized. Um, The idea here is of God's spirit, the same one that's referred to throughout scripture, the one that's uh, referred to as being part of this triune God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to that understanding, like our translators here, is because the, um, the idea that the author seems to be portraying is even though there's nothing there, it doesn't mean that God's not there, right? Right? In the midst of the darkness, God is present and about to work. And so it's not just that God is whistling and the oceans are rolling. It's not just that God is present in some sort of weather pattern. It's actually that God himself is present. Now, one of the reasons that's interesting, as we'll see later, is because when we get to the New Testament, it's going to look at Genesis 1, the same passage we're looking at here, and it's going to place Jesus right in this context. It's going to say that Jesus was present in creation. And so we have the entirety of the triune God participating collectively in the creation of the world. Um, but nonetheless here, it says the spirit of God, and then it says he was hovering over the face of the waters. And hovering, unfortunately, is a really, really rare Hebrew word. Um, it, it's, it's just not very common, and it's translation from one passage to another is is once again very diverse, and so the only place where we find it at least similar to here is in the book of Deuteronomy when it refers to God like an eagle hovering over its young. Okay, that's the only place where we have this concept of air and over the top of. Um, but nonetheless, really, verse two is just context; it's setting. It's like when uh, Shakespeare opens up Romeo and Juliet and says, in fair Verona. It's like when uh, a wrinkle in time begins and says, it was a dark and stormy night. It's just the context and the action, if you will, happens next. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, I've read all that collectively because this is the first day of the seven days that are laid out in creation, and it also sets, sets all of these elements that are recurring. And so we'll see again, and God said, and it was, and he looked at it, and it was good, and it was so. We'll see again that God separated one thing from another. We'll see God's declaration that it was good, and we'll see this uh, ending, and it was evening and morning the first day, the second day, the third day etc. Okay. Um, and so first thing to notice here is that it puts the creative act, the first one, of light, in the mouth of God. Right? It says, And God said, let there be light and there was light. Okay? There's a recognition here that the primary means of creation is the Word of God itself. That God, in his power, in his ability, in his totality, spoke, and it was so. Okay. Now, just as an aside, the Bible constantly records prophecy. Places where God says, here's what I'm going to do, and then it comes to pass. Okay? Now, in Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah actually lays that in front of us as an evidence that the God of the Bible is the real and only and true God in contrast with all other gods. The reason why I bring it up right now is because too often when we hear of things like prophecy, we think in terms of prediction, like God is just accurately guessing what is going to happen. But if you look very closely at the prophecy in the Bible, instead what we have is God saying what he's going to do and then God accomplishing it. There's a direct correlation between God saying it will happen and it happening, and it begins here. It begins with the creation of light, okay? Now, we'll come back to this day because we're gonna get questions when we get to day four. But it says here, God said, let there be light. And in response to his command, out into the void, if you will, it says, and there was light, okay? Now, the next thing I want you to notice is in verse four, it says, and God saw that the light was good, okay? So not only does God speak and command creation into life, but then he assesses that creation as being good. And this is going to be a repeated theme that we'll touch on later because it's it's important to understand what our author's trying to get across here. On top of that, it says uh, second half of verse four: God separated the light from the darkness. Okay. Now the idea here, even in this word separation, is not like God pulling apart light from darkness. It's just it's division. Specifically, its order. Okay, there is darkness and there is light. What we'll see next is he'll do the same thing with land and water. He'll separate them. There is land, dry land, and there are oceans. He'll do the same thing with water and the atmosphere. He'll separate it. It's it's this constant um, pattern. But what it really is is forming the universe. And it says here that there was light. He separated it. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning, the first day. One last thing we haven't mentioned that we'll see over and over again is naming. God doesn't just call light into existence. He names it day and night. He separates it, and then he declares what it is. The reason why that's important is because when he puts Adam and Eve in charge, he gives them the same role, the role of naming. And we'll see that. Okay, Day two, verse six, and God said... There's now darkness and light, there's water, and it says that he separated the water from the water, and when we get to the end of it, we discover what we're talking about is atmosphere, okay? Water and air. And so what's envisioned here is the creation of atmosphere, as we know it, and we now have two places, the water and the air. When we get to day five, we'll see a filling of both of those places, in the same way that we'll see on day three a filling of both the night and And the day Um, God calls that expanse heaven Uh, he saw that it was good verse uh, 8 and there was evening and there was morning the second day now already from a modern mindset we have to wonder why is there this chronology here why why is this being recorded in days I mean let's just recognize here and now um, that the sun and the moon come later The the whole concept that we measure time in, in terms of day and night, don't show up until day four, but it's constantly repeating this frame of evening and morning. The reason, we'll see, has to do with the fact that what we have in creation is a seven-day creation with six days of work and a day of rest. Remember here that the book of Genesis is being most likely edited, compiled uh, by Moses, but even if it's not Moses, it's an introduction to the Pentateuch. And so it roots the seven-day understanding of our work week in God's creative act. And I cannot tell you, or I can guess, I should say, how irrelevant that might seem to us today. Okay. As we continue to study, we'll see that it's tremendously relevant to the Jewish understanding of the world. But nonetheless, here we have day one, we have day two, and then look at day three in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Once again, we see a separation, a dividing. This time, it's between dry land and the seas, It's it's a creation of two new spaces, earth and ocean. Um, And once again, we get God's looking at this, his enjoyment of it, his assessment of it, and he says it's good. Now, in verse 11, as we move into day four, we transition from the changing from a world without form to a formed world, to a world without occupant, empty, to a filled world. And so it goes back over the same spaces. And so day one, what did we look at? We looked at darkness and light. And now look at day four, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And so here we see that darkness and that light, that night and that day being populated with the sun, the moon, and the stars. But there's something missing here that's actually very helpful to understanding what's going on in Genesis 1. Did you notice that he doesn't name the sun and the moon? In fact, they're referred to very oddly as a greater light and a lesser light. That is not because the Hebrews don't have a name for the sun and the moon. Like every culture I'm aware of, they have words for both of those realities, but they're avoided here. And that clues us into something that is important to the author here, okay? The seas, the deep, the light, the sun, the moon, all of these were worshipped by the cultures surrounding Israel. In fact, inherently by all the ancient cultures were were worshipped. And the Hebrew word for sun and moon are borrowed from these languages. And so if he just said naturally here that God created the sun, some would naturally read that, not like we would of this, you know, flaming ball of gas that gives us our light and heat, but of the God, the sun. And he intentionally avoids that here. And he also mentions the stars here as kind of an aside, if you read the other myths of the cultures around Israel, they start with the stars and the stars are this host of gods and fates that control the world and here they just get a side reference at the end of the list. Okay? What I'm trying to say is that Genesis chapter 1 is an apologetic, a defense. It is an attack on the mythical understandings of all of the, cre- uh, all of the creation stories around Israel. For example... Um, If you read the Babylonian myth, uh, you have a war between Marduk and this woman named Tiamat, and Tiamat loses. And he takes Tiamat, and he cuts her in half, and he spreads her out, and that's the ocean and the sky. And what we have here is not a battle, not two opposing gods, but just the sea is another of God's creations. The stars are another of God's creations. This is why, when we read in the book of Romans, it contrasts the biblical worldview with all other worldviews, saying that they have forsaken worshiping the Creator to worship the creation. Okay, here the author of Genesis is intentionally speaking into this world, speaking against this worldview. Um, now. Uh, Moving on to the fifth day in verse 20. So you remember that the second day, the first day dealt with darkness and light, the second day dealt with water and air. Okay? And so verse 20 says, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Now notice it says swarms with swarms. Uh, That's not a normal English way of speaking. It's a tremendously normal Hebrew way of speaking. It's a way of emphasizing something by using the same word over again. And so swarms with swarms, what does that make you think of? It makes you think of just an abundance of life, right? It's not merely a whole bunch of fish, but a whole bunch of a whole bunch of fish, right? That would be a decent paraphrase here. And so the idea here is just of the filling of the seas with all sorts of, of sea life, and when it says here, with swarms of living creatures, um, the word that's used there is not the normal word for fish. It's the one that's sometimes translated in other parts of the Bible as sea monsters, okay? This is is the large class of ocean dwellers, and once again, that's probably because the Leviathan, for example, the Leviathan is this mythical element, this beast out of the chaos that is a constant threat to the gods, Uh, and here it's just Whatever's out there, whatever it is that's swimming in the oceans, it's just a creation of God. It's intentionally laid out as being such. And then not only the ocean, but also the air, air let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every leaving creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So we've seen continuously a separating of things, a division of things, darkness and light, day and night, earth and water, um, air and sea. Uh, And here now we see an order, uh, a regularity, a consistency, and so all of these living things that he creates, it says produce here according to its kind, Um, which is like biology kindergarten level, right? Right? If you have a chicken and it hatch, or and it lays an egg, you expect that egg to be a chicken. You're relatively surprised if it's a snake. Okay. Um, he just lays out here that that's part of God's plan, that God is a God of order. Now, once again, we'll come back to creation and science, but it's worth mentioning here that most of the founders of the scientific method, people like Newton and Bacon... They weren't necessarily Christians. Newton was, Bacon was not. Um, But they did base their assumptions of the scientific method on the fact that if there is a creator, then there is order to the universe. They took that concept from right here. They assumed that water would constantly boil at the same temperature. They assumed that there was an order and an organization to life and therefore testing experimentation, science itself, was a reliable way to learn about the universe because you weren't going to suddenly get a snake instead of a chicken. You could have expectations because there was a regularity and a routine that was built into their worldview and it led to the scientific method. That's why the Western world got to science, modern science as we know it, before the Eastern world that didn't share some of these ideas. But we see this repeated according to its kind of the fish and of the birds, and we see once again, and God saw it was good, and then verse 22, we get something new. God doesn't just speak something into existence. He doesn't just create something and assess it as being good. What does it say here? It says, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. And so we see here a blessing is given over the life that God has created. And the blessing is in the form of a command, but it's a good command. It's a fruitful command. It's a command of growth, of propagation, right? Be fruitful and multiply. You know, enjoy, reproduce, expand. Even though there's swarms of swarms to begin with, there's more swarms to come. And so we see here, if you will, God's intention for the creation of life. He does fill the oceans, but he doesn't fill them to the brim. He starts life, but he doesn't put a maximum occupancy in. He begins, but he doesn't finish. We'll see that as we continue. And then once again in verse 23, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, what do we have on the third day? We had the creation of land, and so no surprise here. We find the filling of land, verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Okay, and so on the sixth day, we get the creation of animals that live on the land, and once again, they are going to reproduce. They're made orderly, organized. You know, the modern scientific uh, method uses a way to organize life into seven levels kingdom, phylum, class, family, no, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Uh, and here, the word kind, if you were to try and make a direct comparison, which is a little bit silly, granted because it's a modern way of viewing things, and we're talking about an ancient language here, but we'd be talking about like the genus or the family level. These words, as they're used in scripture, are broader than just a particular species. So when it says according to its kind here, it means dogs and not dotsons. okay? Now, here, notice though, the sixth day doesn't end there. Once again, the pattern is expanded upon. In fact, we don't even see a blessing, of be fruitful and multiply for the land animals. We find something more. We find something new. To put it a different way, all of the time that God spends on days one, two, three, four, five is outstripped by how much time is spoken about day six. There's a focus here. In the same way, as I said earlier, that clearly, because Moses or our author spends more time on chapters 12 through 50 than chapters 1 through 11, in the same way he spends more time on day 6 than he does the other days, he's drawing it in, he's slowing it down, he's bringing us a focal point. And what is the focal point here? Verse 26, then God said, now notice he breaks the pattern. God doesn't say, let there be man and there was man. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so what we have before the proclamation, before the creation of man, is a conversation. Let us make man in our image. Now, the us here has been a challenge for anyone who's ever tried to interpret the book of Genesis, all the way back to the ancient Jews. They had to decide what to do with this us here. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we'll see repeated throughout Scripture uh, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 that Jews would memorize and repeat daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? This was, like I said, a unique trait. Not one of many gods, not many gods to choose from, but one and only one God. And yet here, we hear in the voice of that God in the midst of creation and us. Now, there are ways to understand this that simplify things but don't seem to actually address what's going on here. For example, maybe this is like the British royal we, right? I don't actually think this is a thing anymore, but if you go back a hundred years, some royalty would speak in the plural because they're just that important. And so they would talk about their desires as our desires, as we want breakfast now, even though they were only one. And so maybe this is just an ascription of royalty, but it's incredibly rare for God to speak this way. He'll do it one more time in Genesis, and then outside of Genesis, he'll do it one more time in the Pentateuch. Okay, another way to understand this is that this is just uh, a part of some ancient myth from a polytheistic that has just been adopted and grafted in, Um, but the assumption there is a really silly one. It's that this guy who's trying to make a case against polytheism accidentally leaves in this surprising contrary point, okay? It assumes that the editor of Genesis isn't actually paying attention or doesn't really care about something that goes directly against his message. Another possibility here is that God is speaking to the heavenly host. One of the things that we don't see created, one of the things we don't see beginning in the book of Genesis are angels, and so, some say, well, maybe God here is speaking to the others who are watching the, particip- or the creation of heaven and say, hey, let's make man. And most people who believe that don't believe that the angels were participatory in this story of creation, but kind of like if you're a kid and your mom says, let's make sandwiches, and then she makes the sandwiches. God says here, speaking to the angels, let's make man, and then does it himself. Okay. Now, I find that to be generally dissatisfying, and the reason is because of the other places that we'll encounter, especially the one we'll see later in Genesis. Because in Genesis, when this is used in chapter 18, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we find this same us, let us go down and see. And then it says something that's just as weird. It says, then the Lord called down from the Lord in heaven, Fire, and so suddenly we have two, and the us makes sense. It doesn't solve the problem because now you have to answer who are the two lords, right? But nonetheless, they're there, and so you have a reason for the us. Okay. Now I don't believe that Moses had a full, robust Christian understanding of the Trinity, but it's pretty clear throughout the usage in the Pentateuch and even in the Old Testament that there is presence of possibility. For God being triune. Okay. We've already seen the spirit of God in verse 2, right? Later, like I said, we'll see two lords. Jesus when he challenged the Pharisees of his day, and he said, "When David says, the Lord said to my Lord, how can the Messiah be the Lord of David and his son?" Right? He's recognizing the same thing, higher than David apart from God, these two addresses, even the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, doesn't use the word for singularity that the Hebrews would use in other places. It uses the word echad. And echad leaves room for plurality. So a bunch of grapes is an echad of grapes, right? Um, and, uh, and so the idea here of us is effectively a window into the divine council, of God speaking to God, of Father, Son, and Spirit in communication. Now, that's actually the best way to understand this, as weird as that may seem, because what does it say? Let us make man in our image. And if you follow this through the Bible, the repeated refrain is not the image of God and angels, but the image of God. In fact, even the relationality of the Trinity helps us to understand Human life. In the New Testament, it goes as far to say that God is love. And the ancient early church father Augustine points out that for God to be love, not to become loving, he must have something to love. He must have always had something to love. And so when the Bible says that God that God is love, it's it's related to the fact that saying God is constantly in and of himself, apart from what he's created, in love, in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there was, a, um, there was a caveat I wanted to make before we started tonight that's implied, but I should now make explicit. We're going to begin a lot of things tonight that we're not going to finish, and I think that's appropriate because we have a whole lot of Bible to get through, and I don't want to spoil everything and keep you here for days so that we can best explain Genesis 1 and 2. Most of what we're going to do is start journeys that we are not going to end tonight. And I promise you, it's going to get worse. But I want you to notice the presence of this. And then we're not done with difficulty yet because it says, let us make man in our image. Now, clearly, already the author of Genesis, by slowing down the perspective, by zooming in on day six, by focusing here and not just giving us the command of the creation, but a conversation is setting aside man as unique, right? This is the last of creation, and it's very appropriately seen as the climax of creation. It's the pinnacle of creation. But there's also a distinction in in how this creation is designed. It wasn't let us make light in our image or let us make animals in our image, but here man is set apart as being in the image of God. But what does that mean? Does it mean that God looks like a human being with a beard and he's eternal and so we look like human beings, right? This is actually something that the church has had lots of interesting um, thoughts on but it's interesting that it's, it's not ever really well defined for us. It says here, let us create man in our image but never do we get a dissertation on exactly what the image of God is in the Bible. It's referred to a lot but it's never explained And I would say that a lot of the early church fathers' understandings just come from recognizing how mankind is different than the animals. And so they'll say the image of God means rationality, that we can think and reason for ourselves, or the image of God means choice, that we have a will and we can make decisions for ourselves, or the image of God means creativity, which would be appropriate in this passage, right, that the creator God creates creators in his image. Um, Or maybe it's that we have the unique ability to relate to God in a special way. And that's what the image of God is pointing to. I would argue that all of those are probably true statements that are related to the image of God but are missing the point. They're all byproducts or consequences or I would even say the equipment to fulfill the purpose of the image of God. Um, But what the purpose of the image of God is, is best understood by brushing up on your ancient Hebrew culture. You see, we find in other myth stories, in other ancient records, this idea of created in God's image. And it always constantly refers to royalty. Okay? Now, on top of that, We also have records written on statues, okay? So if you're a king in the ancient days and you don't have the ability to just put yourself on display on TV, right? What you do is you set up a statue as far as your reign goes. So if you conquer another place, everybody knows that this belongs to you because it's got your statue. That's not uncommon today, right? What happens when a tyrant is overthrown? They pull down his statue. But we have inscriptions on a couple of those statues that refer to them as the image of King So-and-So. Okay, and so it's a representation of his reign. Not only that, but the word here for image multiple times in the Old Testament is used of idols. Okay, and so in the same way that a small statue represents a god, somehow we, according to Genesis, as human beings were created to represent God. Now, here's what's interesting. Like I said, when this word, image of God, is used consistently in other cultures, it only refers to royalty. And here, the Bible subversively says, no, actually, what we're going to talk about here, what the image of God is, is universal to humanity. Now, when we talk today about human rights... Most of that stuff from the American tradition begins in this understanding, that mankind is created in the image of God. When we get to the first prohibition against murder in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 9, it will root it in this understanding. Anyone who sheds the blood of another human being, his blood will be shed because man is in the image of God. Um, This understanding flows throughout the entire biblical ethic and the understanding is ultimately that all human beings somehow share this concept that we were made in God's image and so that changes the rules. Now think of how different that is from other cultures that only this class of people were in God's image. Everyone else has no connection with the divine. But here, it's expanded, it's broadened, and it says, this is humanity as a whole. Another reason why I like this idea of us being effectively um, ruling on God's behalf is because that's what comes next. Oftentimes, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, and especially the best commentary on the Bible is its local context. In other words, if you have a question, keep reading. And so notice what happens next. It says, uh, in our image and in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And So, what do we see here? He creates them in the image to do? To have dominion. Now, that word can carry oppressive connotations, and unfortunately, foolish Christians have often used this concept of mankind ruling over the earth as an excuse of exploitation of nature. But that doesn't come from the concept itself. In fact, the one time that this word for dominion is used in exploitative sense, it adds, you ruled over them oppressively. Okay? It has to be added. The way that the Bible views rulership and even dominion has nothing to do with oppression. Now, that's what comes out of this, right? And all of creation suffers from where we're going in this story. But the idea here is that God created mankind to take care of, to uh, to nurture, to... Uh, to farm and all of these things, to oversee, to rule as God's representative, to rule as God rules, okay? And that's where this idea of image of God uh, comes from. Um, But I want you to notice here that when he gets to verse 27, poetically here, he gets very repetitive. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you think he has a point he wants to make? Okay, why is he getting so redundant here? His purpose is to focus in on this important factor. And notice one of the things he does here is after reminding us that we as human beings are created in the image of God and then reversing and saying in the image of God we were created, he says male and female he created them. So this is all humanity. Both men and women are created in the image of God. The Bible teaches that human beings have intrinsic value, worth, and purpose merely because we are human beings. That is the basis and foundation for Christians of human rights. Rights of property, rights to life, all of it is from that foundation. Um, And one of the things, one of the reasons that is, is not only because they are stamped, if you will, with the mark of God, they belong to God, they were created by God, but also because we all equally have been given this role to rule. Now, this isn't a, um, a promotion of democracy over monarchy or anything like that, but it's a recognition of dignity and purpose in all human beings. And the reason I bring this up and emphasize it is because our modern understanding as American of human rights is rooted here, and when you remove the foundation, when you settle for a Um, a naturalist uh, view of the universe that sees no meaning in human life, that we're just another evolution, you don't have any reason to defend the weak. You don't have any reason to not kill another human being. You don't have any reason to declassify society and not say some are more powerful and stronger and therefore better and deserve all the best. And we're in this weird time as, uh, as a nation Where we still hold all the values that we've gained from Christianity, but we've pulled out the foundation. And so if you were to be true to the values of the modern way of thinking about the world, then survival of the fittest is what got us here. Um, Have you ever seen the X-Men films? This is always the tension in the X-Men films. It's the question of, if we really believe in evolution, then isn't it totally appropriate for what's ever coming after Homo sapiens to get rid of Homo sapiens because they're no longer relevant? But here it's seen as universal and broadly applied and consistent and it will come back over and over again as we move through the scriptures. Now this ruling is what goes sour in Genesis chapter 3. This purpose in having dominion is what goes bad in Genesis chapter 3. In a sense you could say the image is tarnished but the Bible makes very clear that it's not lost and I don't have time to walk you through all these but I'll give you the references and the gist. So, for example, in James 3, verse 9, all the way in the New Testament, James uses this concept of the image of God and says that we can't speak blessing to a person and curse the same person. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. He says that this is so valid that all human beings, we can't abuse. We can't even verbally attack them and get off scot-free because we're denying Both that equality of all human beings and the reality and the fullness and the ownership of God in that act. Um, But it also maintains that in some way this was broken. This was destroyed. And so when we get to the New Testament it starts to speak of the devil, the serpent, this tempter from Genesis chapter 3 as being the prince of this world. right? Somehow the, the power is there and it's not supposed to be. Mankind is being ruled over instead of ruling, and, and we're um, you know, both being beaten down by nature and also abusing nature. We've fallen away from this. And what's really interesting is when the Bible starts to talk about Jesus Christ, it uses this same language. And so in Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the divine glory of God, Jesus is the very image of it, that he is what we were supposed to be. In fact, it goes on um, in Colossians 1.15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. And then interestingly in, in Philippians, it both says that, God, that Jesus had the image of God and that he took on the likeness of men. It takes the same words here from Genesis, image and likeness, and it says that Jesus who was in the image of God, perfectly reflecting him, perfectly ruling for him, became like us, came in our image, that that's part of the plan. And then when you follow it through, um, there's also places where the New Testament talks about the image of God being restored in those who receive Jesus Christ. And so it says that in Romans 8.29 that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15.49 it says, just as we have borne the image of the first man, Adam, so also we will bear the image of the last man, Jesus Christ. And Colossians 3.10 probably puts it the strongest. This one I actually want to read. It says that in Jesus Christ, we have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what does it say here? It says that when we receive Jesus that image of God is being restored. Now, it's not so easy to put all those things together. You can't just build a logical case of we had the image, we lost it, Jesus had the image, he freely offered it to it, now we can have the image again. Um, There's a better way to put it, and I I I, um, I think I wrote down a good quote on this. This is what Klein says about this that I think is a good summary of how the Bible takes this whole concept. In Christ, man sees what manhood was meant to be, Men are the image of Christ so far as they are like Christ. This is how man, the image of God, who is already man, already the image of God, can become fully man, fully the image of God. And so the image of God in all of us, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, is so full and so complete that you can't, you're not just disposable. It doesn't it doesn't render you without dignity. You have purpose, you have value, you have worth. But it's so tarnished in all of us that none of us reflect the attentions and purposes that God had for humanity. And what's crazy is that God, who's the very, or Jesus, who's the very image of God, not just reflecting him, not just as a stand-in or as a representative, but the very fullness of God, it says in the book of Colossians, takes on the likeness of men so that the image in us might be restored. Okay, what I'm saying simply is that the Bible has a plot with a crisis and a resolution just like any other story. And it starts here with as things are meant to be and then things go wrong and God meets us at the problem by coming down and bringing it back and even beyond where we started. Okay, but this idea of the image of God is tremendously important and I far from exhausted it. But if you start with that idea of purpose, that the image of God has to deal with purpose, then all the other things we mentioned, like rationality, like choosing, like creativity, they all subset under that. They all fit within that. That's how or the pieces that, um, that reflect who God is that he gave us to do those things, the unique attributes we have to fulfill our calling to reflect his righteous rule on earth. Okay, Now, I want to emphasize once again that he, he puts here this in the context, particularly of male and female. He sees here human beings collectively, male and female, equal, equally having this role. And that's tremendously important. Okay? So this isn't just a dignity that uh, belongs to men and women are property. The Bible gets a bad rap for being patriarchal and we'll have to deal with this a lot and there are places where you find full-blown patriarchy existing in the Bible but you also find incest. That's, that's not a thumbs up that says that's just what happened, that's just where things are at. Now that doesn't explain away the gender roles that the Bible lays out. Even when we get to chapter 2 we're going to see um, more understanding of this that can't be easily removed but none of that has to do with value. None of that has to do with worth and none of it has to do with purpose. Human beings collectively, male and female, are created in the image of God with the purpose of dominion over the world that God has created. Now, verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So once again, we see blessings. Then verse 29, we see provision. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life. I've given green plant for food. And it was so. Now notice here it says that the whole vegetation is ours for nourishment and it says the same thing about the animals. The whole vegetation is ours or theirs for nourishment. What it doesn't say is anything carnivorous, right? It doesn't say I've given some animals animals to eat and it also doesn't say I've given human beings animals to eat. And so it's possible here that the uh, idealized plan for creation was not, uh, in the words of Tennyson, red and tooth and claw. Um, and there's a good reason to believe that this is what the author is trying to get convey here because Isaiah, who's not just a Bible writer but a Bible reader and is familiar with this passage, when he's explaining what things will be like when it's all set right, says the lion will eat straw like the ox, okay? And he's clearly seeing a recreation, a res- restoration of how things were. Now, once again, that's not how things stay, but it is how it's laid out here. Nonetheless, I want you to notice here that before we get to the command not to eat of a single tree, we get the blessing and the provision of, I've given you all types of things to eat. That'll become important later. Now, uh, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And do you see how that's the capstone on everything we've seen so far? Every other day has been good, 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 and now it's very good. Now, one of the reasons it's very good is because we've gotten to man. We've gotten to the main star of our story, the pinnacle of creation. But we've also gotten to the end of God's six days of creation. And so he could say, yes, it's good that I have light and darkness, but now we're talking about completion, and he says that it's very good. Okay. Now, right there, we need to recognize something which is that God created a good world. Now Paul in the New Testament makes a huge deal about this concept because he's dealing with a group of people who are trying to graft a belief into Christianity that won't fit. And that uh, that belief is called aestheticism. The idea is that the world, the physical world, is inherently bad, a constant threat to be avoided and not enjoyed. And the way to be truly spiritual, to fulfill your purpose as a human being, is to avoid it as much as possible to encounter as little as possible of the world. But what we see here is a constant refrain that the world God created is good, even very good, that it was meant to be enjoyed, to be fruitful and multiply, okay? And so, simply put, the Bible sees creation as a byproduct of the good Creator. And so yes, it's tarnished and fallen, we'll get to that, but it's purpose, it's intention, it's, it was built to be enjoyed, it was built to be beautiful, it was built to reflect God's goodness and when he stopped to assess it himself, he saw it as very good. And once again, this goes directly against the mythologies that we find that are um, coexistent with the story. Um, creation is seen as being chaos, and the gods basically just trying to shape it into something helpful, something beneficial. They make it a little less worse than it is when it starts, but the Bible says, no, the world was created good. It was created very good, with good intentions, fruitful and multiply in mind. Um, And then finally we see, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, I was hoping to get all the way through chapter two. And because it's my first week, we're only going to cover a few more verses, specifically verses 1 through 3. I told you earlier that the chapter um, breaks were helpful for reference, not for interpretation. This is a perfect example. Um, Our chapter break comes between day 6 and day 7. And it's true that the first six days of creation are different than the seventh day, but they're to be seen together. So look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And so it lays out this six day pattern and comes to the seventh day only to say that the work was done. Only to say that on that day there was no more work to do. And so the The creation of the world is laid out in six days, but the seventh day is important. In fact, it has that same aspect that we saw earlier of separation. The word that's used here is holy. And holy is a tremendously important religious term throughout the Bible, but it simply means to recognize as different. When God says, I am holy, he means completely unique, completely different than anything else. When he says that the Sabbath or the seventh day is holy, he means set apart. And we see that in this creation story. The first six days, God works, he creates, he builds, he forms, he makes. On the seventh day, he doesn't. He rests. Now, remember here that this is the introduction to the Pentateuch. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, it's going to tell the Jews that this is the reason why there is a Sabbath day that they should also keep holy. For God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, one of the things that this implies is what we already saw in very good, that this world wasn't just created to continually be a work in progress, but also created to be enjoyed. And so even God himself uh, stops the work and reflects, and it's not because he's tired, and obviously the author here means this in a limited sense. Even when Jesus refers to himself in the ministry of God in the Gospel of John, he says, truly, I and my Father have been working since the beginning. But the idea here is one of completion and one of enjoyment. And so the Bible calls the Jews in the Old Testament to follow this pattern, to observe every seventh day as a day of rest because life is more than work. But, but, as we'll see next week in chapter two, work pre exists sin. It's before the fall. It's part of the plan. And so just as God worked on six days, God puts Adam and Eve in a garden to till the ground, to do the work, to um, have something to do. And this, once again, is so different than the other origin stories we find in the area around Israel. (laughs) The Babylonians have the best version. The gods fail in their coup against another god, and as punishment, the world is created, and he says, maintain it. And so they have to make sure that everything goes right, and it's so frustrating to them that they're like, we should just delegate this so they create human beings. Okay? The view of work throughout the entire ancient world was as a punishment of servile and beneath human beings. And so paradise was seen as a place of leisure and a place of rest. But what we see here is in the same way that the Bible gives dignity to all human beings, in the same way that it gives dignity, dignity to all creation and clearly creativity, It also gives dignity to work. It says that it's inherently valuable because, in a sense, it reflects that same image of God. It's part of the purpose that we were given. You don't just work to eat. You need to work. You were designed to work. And that doesn't mean that you have to clock in at a factory, obviously, but you need to have something to do. And simply put, that something to do is to be fruitful and multiply, or as it puts it in the next chapter, to cultivate you're to take the raw materials that God has made and help them to be something better. The reason why in Genesis 2, God starts with a garden is because it's a perfect picture of this idea of cultivation, right? He doesn't call them as park rangers and say, I want you to protect this space and make sure nothing interferes with it. No, they're to be grafting and they're to be watering and they're to be uh, pruning and they're to be doing what we've discovered in uh, in nature is something that human beings can do incredibly well which is take life and make more life to come alongside creation as it is and bring it to a better place and yes we can totally abuse and take advantage of nature but the concept of what mankind was built for its ruling and reign its dominion is cultivation to take the raw ingredients that God has made and see it grow okay? and so work whatever your work is has dignity Unlike the other views um, that Moses would have been familiar with, this is unique. Um, And in relationship to that, also rest, right? This day is set apart, and so we see this rhythm of six and one, of work and rest. And human beings need both, and human beings are designed for both. It's part of life as it was intended, now, we're going to deal with the Sabbath, the seventh day more extensively, later, um, but I want, to, I want to stop on that for now so we can address a couple of things. Okay, um, first off, what do we do with this? W- what is the purpose of, of this chapter? Um, how are we to read this? In, in a modern view that, that is looking for scientific answers— How do we address this? And I want to just start tonight by saying that you can't be overly simple, okay? For for one, let's just start here. There's this idea that says, well, really what we have, because it's prehistory in the first few chapters of Genesis, is a myth. Okay. And so it's mythology, it's not supposed to be anything else like those other cultures. It's just a legend of how things began to tell us principles but have no roots in reality. And all I want to point out tonight is is that the Bible is familiar with the genre of mythology. Like I said, it mentions Leviathan and Rahab and these um, these gods of the other ones, but it doesn't do it here. And the way that it goes about it is completely different than than what we see here. In fact, what we see is an anti-mythologizing, right? It says, here's everything you've got wrong about the world as, as you know it. Um, the second thing I, I want to say is that um, if you're trying to reconcile the opening chapters of Genesis with science, there's another, pro, uh, another oversimplification I hear all the time, which is, well, it's just poetry. And we understand poetry as not being literal but metaphorical, and so this passage is poetic. And the only challenge I would give you is it's very hard to draw a line in chapter 2 or in chapter 3 or all the way through chapter 11. It's very hard to draw a line and say where the poetry ends and the real history begins, right? And so is it poetical when it says that the serpent deceived the woman or Adam and Eve, part of this mythology? Um, how about the miracles that happened with Abraham in the giving of a son? Not to mention there are, even in the ESV in front of you, pieces of chapter 1, 2, and 3 that are formatted in poetry because they're clearly poetry, right? But what do you do? What do you do with this? And do you have to say, yes, God created the world in six literal days to be a Christian? And I would say if you answer that question, yes, you're also dealing with an oversimplification, because although it's too easy to say this is mythology or this is poetry, we still have to recognize that the primary way we interpret a document is to ask, what was it written to convey? And it wasn't, it wasn't written to give all of the details or to refute science or these types of things. And uh, really, there's, there's kind of four ways that people have gone about um, dealing with religion and science. Um, a guy by the name of... Uh, Barber um, gives us four ways that he sees that t- people have dealt with this um, way. And so the, the four ways are um, conflict, dialogue, integration, independence. What's the relationship between religion and science? He says there's been four of them. Conflict, dialogue, um, integration, and independence. Now, conflict is the one that you're probably familiar with. Okay? And both uh, naturalism, evolution as a belief of a full explanation of life and what we call cre- uh, creation science are in the conflict category. Okay? And so those options become really clear. It's this is not true because there is no God. There is uh, an explainable origin of the universe that has nothing to do with purpose or with a cause outside of the universe. It's completely self-contained. Then clearly that's in conflict here. You cannot reconcile there is no God and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the same way, there are Christians who have argued that, uh, that this must be understood as six literal days and if you don't understand it that way, then you're not, uh, you're not um, accepting this and so they would just say the Bible's right, science is wrong. And the reason we're the most familiar with those is because it's advantageous to promote those sides in conflict. Okay, and there's a really interesting book that I forget the title of. You can ask me about it later. But there's a really interesting book where a guy actually shows that this issue over the last 50 years has been exacerbated by people who want to make a completely different point. But what about these other categories? On the other side of conflict is independence. And that basically says the Bible is a religious book, science is a science book. They have no overlap whatsoever. And mostly this comes from a theologian by the name of Barth and a few others who believed that the truths of the Bible had nothing to do with reality. They transcended reality and history didn't matter. It doesn't matter if Jesus lived or died or resurrected. The the kergama, the preaching of Jesus, is an internal reality for me. Now, I would say that that's tremendously problematic, okay? Because the Bible's primary message is one of God actually saying and doing things in life. That God can be known because he's revealed himself to mankind. That it's not just um, uh, spiritual nourishment and its its cause doesn't really matter. The effect is what matters. But in between that is two other categories, dialogue and integration, which means uh, an open interaction, both of them, an open interaction between the two. Now, Um, I know Christians that I respect and love who kind of fill, for the most part, the gamut of these places. Um, In fact, too often I hear people say, well, if you don't hold a literal view of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, then you don't have a high view of scripture. And the struggle I have with that is that the book... The one book that formed for me an understanding that the Bible declares itself to be the inerrant and infallible revelation of God was written by a guy named B.B. Warfield, okay? Now, this book is a tough read. This guy was a, he was just addicted to studying the littlest pieces of the Bible, and he lays it all out. His book is a defense of these doctrines based on what the Bible actually says to the Word. It's intense. Um, I actually, if, if you want to read it, I'll give you one chapter that you can read that's really great, but everything else you have to kind of slog through to get its value. But nonetheless, this book was what confirmed it for me, that I really thought that's what the Bible said about itself, and it made sense to me. He has another book where he talks about evolution, and he actually believes that evolution, as long as it's not a philosophical explanation of the whole universe, but a means that God used, is a viable possibility. And I'll just remind you tonight that B.B. Warfield is one of the greatest fundamentalists of Christian history. Okay, And so he's much closer in history to the beginning of Darwinism, and he receives it in this way. Um, and frankly, I just respect him too much to write him off as a heretic. Um, however... Uh, let me just read this in summary because it does a better job. This is from Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, and he's talking about Barber's Model that I mentioned. This is what he says. Different Christian thinkers use all of Barber's models of relating science to faith, conflict, dialogue, integration, and independence. Some Christians in the highly publicized creation science movement take the conflict model and insist that Genesis 1 teaches that God created all life forms in a period of six 24-hour days just several thousand years ago. At the other end of the spectrum are Christians who take the independence model and simply say that God was the primary cause in beginning the world and after the natural causes took over. Other thinkers occupy the central positions. Some hold that God created life and then guided natural selection to develop all complex life forms from simpler ones. In this view, God acts as a top-down cause without violating the process of evolution. Others believing there are gaps in the fossil records and claiming that species seem to appear rather than develop from simpler forms believe that God performed large-scale creative acts at different points over long periods of time. Okay, Now, the idea here is basically that if philosophically God created the heavens and the earth and what you believe scientifically is that he used what we seem to observe in science known as evolution as the means to do it, that's a viable Christian understanding, but there are some major thresholds to that, okay? Um, One is, and and these are things that I just point out that that you uh, will have to face. Um, One is that eventually you're gonna have to deal with the fact that the Bible sees Adam and Eve as historical people and the first human beings and the only first human beings, okay? That we all descend from him. And that's not just true in the genealogies of Genesis, but Jesus speaks of Adam and Eve as the historical beginning of humanity. Now, that idea of evolution, um, is, is problematic. And so as Keller mentioned, there's some who believe that God created this life over periods of time and then interfered and made something different in man. And I really like what Chesterton says. He says, in man, we don't see an evolution, but a revolution, right? The jump between ape and man is a huge jump. That's why he says it's a truism to say a man drew a picture of a monkey and it's the punchline of a joke to say a monkey drew a picture of a man. He says, art is the signature of man. It's something unique. It's something completely different. Another thing is, the Bible says that death begins with Adam and Eve. And so this idea that things have been living and dying and living and dying, and then we get to Adam and Eve, is not easily reconciled with that reality. Um, Now, as for for the idea of this being six literal, literal days, that's personally what I believe. And it's not because I'm afraid of science or I don't think those things are reconcilable with the Bible. It's just when it says here an evening and morning was the first day, I don't know what else he's trying to convey if it's not that, okay? Um, But the big thing I want to point out is twofold. First, if you're a Christian, just recognize very simply that the Bible and the universe are both relatively big things, okay? And so whatever you are adamant about in your understanding, you should hold with a loose and open hand. As much as the Bible does say about creation here, there's a good deal it doesn't say, okay? Um, Second, second, recognize that science, like interpreting the Bible, is a work in progress, okay? And that these theories uh, are... Maybe the best way that science has of explaining these things, but I promise you this, it won't be the last way science has of explaining these things. And then lastly, there's something here that evolution doesn't do at all. Okay. Evolution tells us about how life changes. It doesn't tell us how life began. Okay. And the great gaps in the history of understanding the world are just as difficult for them as they are for us from nothing to something, from something to life, from life to humanity. Okay? And evolution can't fill in those spaces. They can guess at those things, but they can't scientifically observe or prove those things. And so, um, once again, in the words of Chesterton, I love how he says this. He says, nobody can imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch nearer to it by explaining how something can turn into something else. Right? And so, so eventually even if you're a hardcore evolutionist who doesn't believe the Bible, you're going to have to recognize that the beginning of the chain is something or nothing. And if there's something, then you haven't gotten to the end of the chain. And when we ask the question, where did the world come from? It came from nothing. Suddenly becoming something is not really that less faith requiring than in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Now, if you're not a Christian and you hold the scientific view or you find it offensive that I would even talk in this way, let me just point out that this isn't really where things begin. It's where the Bible begins, but what you should really focus on is who was Jesus? Did he really live? Did he really die? Was he actually resurrected? Um, If you can nail those things down, then you can address these things and wrestle through them. Frankly, if Jesus didn't come, if Jesus didn't die, then this doesn't matter. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians are of of all people to be most pitied, because there is no reason to believe in these things, to trust in these things. Um, But once again, I would say to be gracious and open-handed, there are thresholds here that are really important, Um, but there's also a good deal of room and understanding, and um, it's easy to write people off. Uh, but we need to remember that even if they're wrong, they're created in the image of God, right? As as Christians, there's an inherent dignity in people when they're wrong and even when their intentions are bad and the reality is because we're all fallen, as we'll get to in chapter 3, that means that we're all also wrong somewhere and we're all prone to wrong and we're prone to even be right wrongly, right? And so we can have the right idea but use it in such a way that we don't use it rightly and so the important aspect that the Bible lays out here in its introduction is that this world exists because God wanted it to exist. And that he created it not just without form and void, that it was just a naked thing with no intention. Like he started a, a work of art and then went, eh, that's enough. Whatever happens, I don't care about and walked away. But that he had a plan and a purpose and that that purpose was good. And also that that purpose and plan focuses on human beings. The Bible is inherently God-centered, but its story is inherently anthropomorphic. Why doesn't Genesis 1 tell us about angels? Because it's ultimately not a story about angels. As much as Tolkien would like to in the Silmarillion deal with those issues, the Bible doesn't. Because it's a book for man to tell us who God is. Um, let's, Let's pray and we'll close there for the night. God, the concept, the truth, the reality that's proclaimed in this passage of a benevolent, transcendent, all-powerful creator uh, is, is so foundational to Christianity. The only reason why man is redeemable at all is because they were created in the image of God with a purpose. The reason why Jesus had to become a man like us is rooted in these ideas. Um, the, the problems that are to be presented in chapter three uh, are directly related to these, to these issues. And I just ask that you would help us to, um, to come to our own conclusions thoughtfully and thoroughly, uh, but, but to, to hold them humbly both knowing that we are fallible and that we're still learning, uh, and also uh, knowing that everyone else has inherent dignity, even the dignity of being wrong because they were created in your image. I pray as well that we wouldn't be so foolish that we would think these things don't matter and that we can just put them together in any way we want, that we would recognize there are real thresholds and difficulties and what we would desire ultimately is a better understanding of who you are and what you've done. And I thank you also for this, all of the places that we find here in the creation story, good things, dignity given to work and to rest, to creation, to all of mankind, um, to creativity. In all of these ways, Lord, you looked at the world and said it was good. And I pray that we would enjoy its goodness. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.